Last winter, I was asked to speak at the undergraduate chapel service at Lincoln Christian University. Quite an honor. I was looking forward to doing that. Because of the scheduling, I wouldn't be speaking until April. I began working on a message that I thought would be appropriate. And then in February, the announcement came that there would be some changes at Lincoln Christian University, that the school would be scaled back, and that many, most, most of the undergraduate students would be going home at the end of the semester and would not be returning. Their programs would have been canceled. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I would be the last chapel speaker that many of those students heard. And I began forming a message that I thought would be meaningful to them. I wanted, I wanted a sermon that was specifically for those who were going through that, that undergraduate experience, those who had left home, and now those who were going to have to go back. And so I wrote a sermon reflecting on my own days in Lincoln, my own undergraduate experience, not, not just why I went to Lincoln, not just what I went to Lincoln for, but what I was running away from in Kansas. That was part of the message as well. And when I finished the sermon, I thought to myself, well, this is a good, this is a good message. This is, this will work. This will do the job. And I said, there's no way I can preach this message at home. This message is too raw. This message is a little too honest. And I said at that time, I will never preach this message in Kansas. And then I realized this is exactly where I need to preach this, this sermon. Because this sermon is, because you've been with me, not just for 20 years. Many of you have been with me for 55 years. And if this message is about what God has done through me, it is also a message about what God has done through you. Mom said, Mom always told me, don't get up there and tell everything about our family. Don't get up there and tell everything. And I honored that while she was alive. <laughs> but I happen to believe that my mother's faith has become sight. And as 1 Corinthians 13 says, that she, is now, she now knows fully even as she is fully known. And as she knows fully, she is fully aware of what, aware of what God's grace is has done for her what God's grace has done for us. She would want you to know about the grace that I've received, the grace that I've received from you, and the way you've blessed us, the way you've blessed my family and me, and the way you have loved me out of a wilderness and into the kingdom of God. So if you've got your Bibles with, me, with you, meet me in Mark chapter 5 today. We're going to be in Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. If you want to use one of those blue Bibles in front of you, it is page 840. In this passage, Jesus arrives on the east side of the Sea of Galilee to a country known as the Gerasenes. It is the wild country. It is the wilderness. And if you remember, if you were to flip back just a page in my Bible, you would see that in Mark chapter 4, Jesus and the disciples in crossing the Sea of Galilee encountered this horrible storm, so horrible that it frightened these disciples, many of whom were fishermen. They thought they were going to be swamped. They thought they were going to be drowned. Jesus wakes up. 
He looks at the storm. He spreads his arms and he says, peace be still. And the wind and the waves cease and the sea becomes calm as crystal. And the disciples are terrified. And they ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. And here, on the other side, in the wilderness, Jesus is going to encounter a man who knows exactly who he is. A man who knows the pain of being cast out. And a man who will soon encounter the grace that welcomes him back home. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he would always be crying out. He would cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirits. This man has questions for Jesus. Jesus has questions for him. I've got my own questions as I look at this text. And my question is this, who chained this man up? And why did they stop chaining him up? It's the second detail that Mark gives us right after telling us that the man has an unclean spirit. There in verses 3 and 4, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. At one time, someone or someones had shackled this man. They had chained him up. They had kept him in irons. Why? Verse 5 tells us that he would often cut himself. Cut himself with stones. And so they chained him up to protect him from himself. He's also rampaging. He is also running wild. And so they chain him up to protect them from him, to keep the community safe. They chain him, they shackle him, but he breaks the chains again and again. And finally comes a time when the people just stop trying. In the city, this is called the broken window theory. The broken window theory states that Vandalism occurs, a rock or a brick is thrown through a shop window, and the shop owner replaces the window, puts in a new window. But pretty soon, the, another rock is thrown, the window is broken again, the shop owner replaces it, it's thrown, it's replaced, it's thrown, it's replaced, and finally, the shop owner realizes this problem is out of control, it is too much trouble, it is too much work, it is too expensive, so instead of fixing it, the shop owner goes and buys a sheet of plywood, and the window is boarded up. It's a way of admitting this problem has become unmanageable. It is unfixable. It is more trouble than it's worth. And sometimes that's windows. And sometimes it's people. Sometimes that's us. 
Sometimes that's family. I have made no secret of growing up in an alcoholic family. There is no point in trying to make it a secret in a town of 800 people. And if you're a local and you didn't notice that my father was an alcoholic, maybe you just weren't paying attention. But I know what it's like to chain up the chaos. We know what it's like to try to lock it away, to try to look like a normal family. You set boundaries and you hold that person accountable. And again and again, they break the window. Again and again, they fall off the wagon until finally you give up and you say, just let the wilderness have them because there's no controlling them. And that is a very dark place. That's a very dark place to find yourself, but it's also a place where you can find Jesus. And it was in that place at 16 years old that I finally decided to give Jesus a try. It wasn't just that you had convinced me of His grace. It wasn't just that many people in this church had convinced me of His love, of His forgiveness, that at 16 years old, Jesus could forgive me of my many, many sins and that He could, he could save me and that I could go to heaven. I became convinced that if Jesus could do all of that, maybe He could fix my dad too. Maybe He could finally chain up what we couldn't control. So at 16 years old, I gave my life to Christ expecting that Jesus would handle this, that He would take it away, that He would lock it up. But what I've come to see is that Jesus does not lock stuff up. Jesus sets people free. Verse 9 Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The chaos erupts in that moment. And the, it, the story, it, the chaos draws us in. And in a few moments, the people from town will come running to see what it is that's happened. But here, you cannot miss that Jesus has done what He always does. Jesus sets free what we cannot begin to contain. He sets free what we cannot begin to to contain. Everybody's favorite part of the story is the pigs. And that's usually where we stop reading because it's just so weird and we just kind of think, well, that's the story. And we get to the pigs. What is the pig? What are the pigs about? What does it mean? A few years ago, I was driving north of town. I was heading to the hospital to visit one of our families. I got about five miles north of town. Jess, I was right there by your house, right, right next to where Nyla Seals used to live. And as I'm driving along, there in the middle of the road is a dead baby pig. And I started wondering, where did that come from? And I started having all kinds of little imaginations in my head. Where did that baby... I figured the people that lived there in Nyla's old house, they probably had a, they probably had a pet baby pig, you know? And they were probably playing ball with the pig. You know, and they threw the ball and the ball went out in the road and boom, here comes a truck. And 
So I drove along, and within a couple of minutes, I found out where the pig had come from, because just a few minutes later, I was behind a semi-trailer that was hauling baby pigs. How did I know? Because the gate was down on the back, and every few seconds, I'd see a little pair of pink ears pop up over. Every now and then, a snout, a little pink snout would come up over the top, and once in a while, these two front legs would pop up over that gate, this little pig trying to get out, just like his buddy had. And I realized if this happens and I'm behind him, I'm catching a pig on the hood of my Jeep. I don't want to do that. So I pulled up beside the truck. I rolled my window down. I got the driver's attention. I said, you're losing pigs. And he pulled over and I pulled in behind him and I helped him fix the gate. He thanked me and then he drove off and I thought, that feels pretty good. I helped save those pigs. And then it occurred to me, what did I save them from? Where did I think he was taking those pigs? They've been so good. They've been such good little piggies. We're going to take them to the park. It was a beautiful sunny day. Let's take them. We'll go get ice cream afterwards. No, no, no. Those little piggies were going to market. All I had done was delay the inevitable. And I, I got to wonder, what if, what if that one second of free fall, right there by your house, Jess, what if that one second of free fall from the back of that gate all the way, you know, the, it was a sunny, beautiful day, the sun, you know, warming his little snout, his ears flapping in the breeze. What if that one second before he hit the pavement was the most wonderful moment of that little pig's short, miserable life? But, you know, the gate being up felt safe. The gate being up felt like it was protecting the pig's Chains in the cemetery felt safe, but it didn't end the chaos. Keeping the man in the tombs, that felt safe. Jesus turns the demons loose on these pigs. It, it's a visual aid to remind you and me that the chaos is real. And you cannot contain it. You cannot board it up. You cannot chain it down. You cannot make it look normal. Now I will admit, and those of you who knew me growing up will agree, I did a very bad job of trying to look normal as a child. I'm still not very good at it. I did not do a very good job of trying to look normal, and I hope you'll remember when you think back to that weird kid here in Kansas riding around town on his unicycle. I hope you'll realize he was dealing with stuff at home that he should have never had to deal with as a little kid. And what I've come to understand is that maybe by drawing attention to himself with his unicycle, with his juggling, with his hat, with all the other things, maybe by drawing attention to himself, he was trying to keep you from seeing what was really happening in the background, what was happening that he couldn't control at home, what he was trying to keep hidden and keep boarded up. I think about that when I watch some of the weird kids that walk by here. Not on unicycles, because they're not that cool. But when I think, when I see some of the kids walk by, I wonder what they're hiding at home. I wonder what secrets they're trying to keep, what they're trying to keep boarded up and keep you from seeing. I'm told that maybe someday, those of us who are residents of Kansas, maybe someday we will get to vote on whether or not to allow alcohol sales here in the community. That may happen someday. We might get to vote on whether or not to allow liquor sales here in town. Now, my dad would tell you the way I vote is none of your 
blank, blank business. And I will agree with the old man on that. I will never tell you how to vote, and I will very seldom tell you how I intend to vote about anything. But if we ever get a chance to vote on alcohol sales, I will not be voting as a 55-year-old man who understands economics in a small town and who understands that the only thing that will save us is alcohol sales. I'll be voting as a 13-year-old boy who had to drag his father in the house at night because he was too drunk to walk. And his mother didn't want him laying out there where the neighbors could see him. I'll be voting for that kid because I have to believe that there's at least one other 15-year-old, 13-year-old kid in our community who's doing that now. It's probably more. And I don't want to make it any harder on them. I don't want to make getting the alcohol any easier for those who are causing the problems for them. I'm going to vote because there's got to be another kid like that in this town. I'm voting for that kid. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Who are these people who show up now terrified of this man who is now sitting in his right mind, sitting dressed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. By the way, sitting at the feet of Jesus, that is the posture of a disciple. Whenever the Gospels tell us someone sat at the feet of Jesus, that person is a disciple, whether it's Mary, Mary and Martha, whether it's the other disciples, disciples sit at the feet of their teacher. These people are, are terrified. Who are these people? Begging Jesus to leave, I think we are left to assume that at least some of them are the same people who had chained him up. The same people who had tried to care for him. The ones who had given up on him. The ones who couldn't control him. And the ones who finally just said, let the wilderness have him. And they want Jesus gone. Because if they could not contain this man with chains, then there is no way they can stop the guy who set him free. And what about that man who's been set free? So where do you go? Where do you go when the chains come off? Where do you go when the insanity finally ends? The people see him dressed. He's in his right mind. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And they are afraid. Crazy naked guy rampaging in the cemetery. We're okay with that. But this, this is too much. And they say to Jesus, you got to go. You can't be here. But what about the man from the wilderness? What about this man who was formerly bound in chains, formerly uncontrollable? Where is he going to go? Verse 18, and as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. <clears throat> he begs Jesus, let me come with you. Let me follow you. Let me be a disciple. Now this is Jesus, mind you. I don't know if you're familiar. This is Jesus. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is walking by the sea and he sees fishermen with their boats and their nets and he calls them, come follow me, I will make you fishers of men. They leave their boats, they leave their nets and they follow Jesus. He sees a tax collector, Matthew, sitting in his tax collector booth and he says, come follow me. 
And Matthew abandons his tax collector booth and goes and follows Jesus. A little later on, just a few more chapters down the road, Jesus will encounter children. And people will bring children to Jesus. And he will say, do not hinder them. Let the little children come to me, for as such as these is the kingdom of heaven. And then a little later on, he will encounter a rich young man. And Jesus will tell him, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. That's what Jesus does. But what about this man? What about this man who's been set free of his chains, set free of his demons, this man who is begging, let me follow you? Verse 19, And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. Go home to the people who knew you at your worst and show them what the Lord has done for you. Go home to people, some of whom exhausted themselves taking care of you, and show them that it wasn't worthless, it wasn't hopeless. Tell them what happened and then you show them mercy. The place where you were healed might be the very place where Jesus needs you. There's a corollary to the broken window theory. And that is that eventually when the plywood comes down and when they finally replace the window, other windows in the community start to get replaced. And vandalism goes down and the community begins to experience health and healing. Could the same happen when those who were sent off to the wilderness return home, when hurts are healed, when the chains come off, when hope is restored, and when you realize that place where you were broken and that place where you were healed is the very place where Jesus needs you. Verse 20, And he went away, the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's Ten cities, by the way. The Decapolis means ten cities. He went away and began to proclaim in the ten cities how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. I think those last three words are the understatement of the year. Everyone marveled. They were astonished. I'm left wondering how easy was it for him to go back home. How easy was it for him to go back where these people had seen him at his worst? Where these people had seen him uncontrollable, had seen him in his pain? Was it easy to go back and tell them how Jesus had saved him? Was it easy to show them the mercy that Jesus had shown him? That place where you were hurt and then healed, that might be the very place where Jesus needs you. Some of you have lived this out in, in beautiful ways. I think of Eric dealing with his own addiction, turning his addiction into a ministry through Alcoholics Anonymous, encouraging others and, and holding them accountable and showing them that there is a way out of the, of the chaos. I think about Jim and Maxine losing their son, Jason, and so often Jim and Maxine are the first ones to reach out to those who are hurting, those who are grieving, I think about many of you cancer survivors 
Uh, those who have survived the, the, the loss of loved ones. Some of you abuse survivors. Your surviving becomes thriving for someone else because you know the pain of that place that wounded you, but you also know the mercy that you received. Just a few more days, a few more weeks, it will be 20 years since I came back home to Kansas Christian Church. 20 years since I came back to my home church, but also back to my wilderness. And as much as mom wanted me to not tell everything, I can't keep the windows boarded up. If I don't share my hurts with you, then I can't share his mercy with you. I think about the times over the last 20 years that I've been in hospital rooms sometimes with some of dad's drinking buddies. And I've prayed with them. I think about the high school teachers, some of whom I've buried. And I wonder if some of them knew what was going on or suspected what was going on. At the very least, they always imagined that there was more for me than just that cycle of addiction that had been a part of our growing up. I think about some of the conversations I've had with some of you and some other people in the community who have told me, yeah, things weren't good at our house either. It was pretty bad at our house. We can't make those impacts on people's lives. We can't make the impacts on the people's lives around us if we keep ourselves chained up. Whatever it is that's chained you up, whatever it is that has boarded up the windows, whatever it is that has left you saying this is helpless, there is no controlling this. Let's find His mercy together. Not just for ourselves. Let's find His mercy for each other. Let's find His mercy for those who are still out there in the wilderness. Those who still need to be set free. As we come to our communion time, I remind you again, this is not just about what Jesus has done for us. This is about what you and I do for each other. We say this is the body, this is the blood, and we take that into ourselves. And in taking that into ourselves, we take in His grace, we take in His forgiveness, we take in His mercy. And we carry that to a world that's desperate for those things. Not just a world, but neighbors and friends. People around us who have no idea there's that kind of love, there's that kind of forgiveness. And we take this to show them there's something more for them than just what they've had in this world. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing what I think is a very appropriate song today. And then we're going to take together. Let's pray. Father, somehow, somehow I have to thank You for the wilderness. Somehow I have to thank You for those times when things seemed uncontrollable and unmanageable. I even thank you for the pain. Because without that, I would never know your mercy. Not this way. Father, we, we take today, remembering the body broken for us, the blood shed for us, we take this not just for us, but with the hope, with the desire that those, those in our lives who are still hurting, those in our lives who are still very much very much held captive. And those who are pretending that everything is normal, 
that they would know that Your mercy is there for them. Bless this time. Bless this cup. Bless this loaf. and Bless this time as we, as we take this together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.